All right, good morning, church. Hey, if you're new with us, my name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. I'm also the, the guy that finds your keys in the restroom. So if your Chevy uh, has keys that are missing, you need to see our security team because uh, you can't I'll say, hey, you're not getting home without it. You know. Uh, the other thing is, hey, I, I don't say this enough also. It happened first service. Um, one of our young moms was nervous about leaving their child in our nurseries, and they were debating on what they should do. I, I, I need to tell you, Young children in the service never, ever bother me. Never bother me. You can have them in here as much as you want. That You want to know what bothers me? If you sleep. That's what bothers me. Kids don't bother me at all. And I want to encourage you, if a mom brings one of their babies in here because for whatever reason, and the baby makes a noise, which they do, please don't give them the stink eye. They know the baby's making noise. That They're doing their best with the child. It doesn't bother me at all, okay? So, because we're a family church, and that's what a family does. Sometimes kids are in the service, and we're cool with that. If, again, if you're new with us, we're in the book of Matthew. We've been in it for quite some time. We're in the final few moments of Matthew. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, hope you do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew 26, we're just hours from the end. Uh, he's just hours from the cross. And last week, we saw Jesus. He was celebrating the Passover meal in the upper room. They got done eating it. They sang a hymn, which was an amazing grace. It was Psalm 118. After they got done singing that hymn, they took off for a 1.5-mile walk across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. We talked about that last week, where we saw the pressure mounting on Jesus. Three different times, the pressure just, just pushing down on him like olives. We saw him praying, Father, if it's possible, may you take this cup from me but not as I will, your will be done. And each time Jesus returns from praying, Peter and his boys are sleeping. They just can't stay awake. And Jesus goes back and prays again, comes back, they're still sleeping. But the cool thing is, while he did need his disciples, we need to realize that, that they aren't the ones that are comforting Jesus. Why? Because the disciples are not where his identity is found. Jesus does not get his significance. He doesn't get his value. He doesn't get his worth. He, he doesn't get his calling from the disciples. He gets it from the Father. Only from the Father through prayer. Church, if you're getting your identity, if you're getting your significance, if you're getting your worth and your value through work, through your kids, through whatever it is, and not the Lord, we should talk. We should talk, because it only comes from the Father through prayer. And this road that Jesus was on is not an easy one. He is to drink the cup that's being given to him, and the cup that's being handed to Jesus here is the cup of the wrath of God, a cup that was due us for our sin is about to be poured, on, poured out on him so that he takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of our church. He takes the sin away from you and I. It's what I called last week the great cup exchange. And while all of this was happening, the disciples, they're physically present, right? 
but they are spiritually unaware. They have no concept of what's happening. They have no sense of awareness of what God is doing. And so we saw this incredible contrast between the two. And so it, Jesus finds this strength and this power through prayer that allows him to sort of stand up in verse 46. We closed with that last week. Verse 46 says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So the power and the energy and the focus and, and the courage to face all that was headed Jesus' way, it all came through prayer. Prayer, church, is a powerful, powerful thing. Amen. It's one of the few things that scares the pants off Satan. It's what it does. And as we walk through our text this morning, I want to challenge you to do something. We're going to look at all sorts of different characters in this story. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen and see if you can sort of see yourself in the story. If you can find yourself or some things in one of the characters, and I'm going to give you a quick hint, it's not Jesus, okay? In case you're one, sort of like free advice, like don't eat yellow snow. Yeah, same sort of deal. It's not Jesus. I mean, I know we all want to say Jesus, but it's not. And so let's take a look starting at verse 46. So it's 2 a.m. in the morning after praying three different times having been pressed like olives in the garden of the olive press, Jesus says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And when I read that, I stopped and began to wonder, how must that have felt? Because Judas is one of the disciples. By the way, sometimes I think we act like Judas sort of snuck in the back door and was like a sort of disciple. No, no. Actual called disciple. Spent three and a half years walking around with Jesus. They sat around countless dinner tables together, had countless meals together, laughed together, prayed together, did ministry together, was empowered to do miracles this is the guy leading the mob, not some random person. The person leading the mob wasn't a stranger. This is Judas, a friend, a ministry partner. This guy had been with Jesus the whole time. What must that have felt like to see him leading the mob? Can you imagine a friend of yours, a close friend of yours, you've been with them, they've been in your home, they've had countless meals with you and your family, they're leading the charge against you. The second question I had in this verse was, I wonder how big this, this crowd is. Well, when we look at John's account in John chapter 18, it says, so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And when you read Luke's account, it tells us, tells us that there was officers of the temple and there were elders present. So you got this huge like conglomeration of potentially an entire Roman detachment, which by the way could have been up to 600 dudes. And then you got these chief priests and Pharisees, you got temple guards, you got elders, and they all come walking out of the sun gate. Jesus and the disciples can clearly see them because they're walking out at 2 a.m. Not a lot of people go for walks at 2 a.m., and here they are clanking with swords and shields, and you can see the lanterns they're carrying, and they're walking their way. I think sometimes 
we think they're like ninjas, and they just sort of showed up on the scene. That's not what happened. Or they're walking in single file, all quiet-like and prayerful with their hoods up. Not it at all. Not it at all. And what's cool about this moment is it's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's account, we see something that's worth noting. I'll put it on the screens behind me. John chapter 18, verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? So here's Jesus asking a question of the mob that's not recorded in Matthew. In verse 5, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, they, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. I am. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, when he said the words, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Like, can you picture that for a second? When he used the name of God, I am, there's almost like a power that comes out of them. It was so strong, they just fell face down, swords dropping, lanterns dropping, torches dropping to the ground. And they're all like, whoa. And, and just to be clear, this is no normal human doing this, right? This is uh, no typical person gets this sort of response or, or this sort of reaction. He answers them with the name of God, I am, and there is power in his name. Amen. There is power in his name. It knocks people to the ground. That's what it does. There's a lot happening here. And let's just say for easy math, let's say 600 is way too big. Let's go with 300 to be conservative in this mob. And you got Judas and the soldiers and Pharisees and elders and priests and all carrying swords and sticks and lanterns and torches. And, and they all fall to the ground at Jesus' response. How do you think that went as they got up? Right? They're brushing off their clothes like, what just happened? What is going on? That guy speaks and we fall down. Like, how does that work? And they're getting their bearing. And before they could get everything picked back up, before they could get their bearings, it says that Jesus asked them the same question a second time. Who is it you want? And they answer again. But this time, the first time I think they went, we want Jesus of Nazareth. Right? The second time they're like, Jesus of Nazareth? Right? Because if he says the same thing, they're going to be back on their, on their faces again. And now look at Matthew uh, 26, verse 48. It says, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And I read that verse, and I was a little bit conflicted. Because Judas does address Jesus with a term of, of honor and respect. He calls him Rabbi. Because he could have just said, what's up, dude? Like, he just could have done that. But that's not what he does. But on the other hand, Judas doesn't call him Lord. He has called him Lord in the past, but he doesn't call him Lord here. And it makes me wonder if Judas is all torn up inside. Because we know that when Judas left the upper room, Satan, like the Satan, not one of his minions or demons, the Satan entered him. That's a bad day, right, when that happens. And that's going to change some things. And Judas is operating and being driven by a power of darkness that I don't think we fully understand. He has to own his own decisions, sure, but we have to acknowledge that the battle is something we might not fully understand when Satan 
entered him. And to be honest, one thing that really scares me about this whole situation is Judas was with Jesus for three years. Three years. Literally walking and eating and praying and resting with and watching Jesus pray and doing all the miracles, seeing and experiencing all the things that Jesus did, and yet Judas still betrays him. Not denies him like Peter does, betrays him. Does that bother you at all? Because is it possible to be so close in proximity to the Lord that you're literally eating meals with him? When Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, you aren't just physically present, you're actually carrying the miracle. Is it possible to be so close proximity-wise to Jesus and not have personal faith in him? That's scary. I mean, the obvious answer is yes. And if Judas can be that guy, what makes me nervous about that is proximity doesn't save. Being around the things of God does not save. Being near Jesus does not save. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, hey, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And wasn't I close to you? Didn't I have proximity to you? And I will say to them, Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Like, that's terrifying, isn't it? In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And I guess maybe the shot across the bow for us is, I wonder how many of us have proximity to him, but have no personal faith in him. Meaning like, you've been around it. Like, you grew up in it. Some of you like, I was born in the nurseries at my church. That's where I started. And then after I graduated from the nurseries, I went to Awana. And I memorized all the verses. And then I went to youth group. And then I joined a, a small group. And maybe you even served in leadership of some kind. But none of that is the same as salvation. Presence is not the same as salvation. Proximity is not the same as a personal faith in Jesus Christ. No one, absolutely no one is born a Christian. I hope Judas scares you a little bit. And we're going to look at him a little more next week. But look at verse 50 here. It says, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. I read that and I thought, friend? I got some things I'd call them that aren't friend, right? But it's interesting when you start looking at this word friend, it's only used three times in your entire Bible. It's only used in Matthew. It's used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 with the parable of the landowner. It's used in Matthew 22 with the parable of the marriage feast. And then again here, all three times this word is used, the person who is called friend 
is wrong. So if Jesus calls you friend, uh-oh, right? That's not a good sign. In Jesus' day, the word is used for someone who you don't know their name. So it'd be like in the hallway, if someone walks up to you and says, hi, and you're like, hey, you, right? <laughs> hey, man, that's the idea. So, so the question would be, does Jesus know his name? Well, of course, intellectually, Jesus knows Judas' name. Jesus' point, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And then it says, they seize him. It says, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And if things aren't strange enough, here's where it starts to go sideways even more. Look at verse 51. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And it's strange because if you look at that, Matthew, it's almost like Matthew is embarrassed to tell us who did it. Like he doesn't want to sell out his friend here. But I bet you'll never guess who did it. I bet you'll never guess who is all passion and no polish. I bet you'll never guess who lives life ready, fire, aim. I bet you'll never guess it. Uh, yeah, it's Peter. How do we know it's Peter? So Matthew doesn't want to dime him out, but John has no problem. Because in John chapter 18, it says, that guy. Simon Peter, he's your boy. That's what it says. It says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So he has no problem selling out his friends, apparently, but he actually also gives us the target of the assassination attempt. But so here's Peter now, fully in the flesh, physically present but spiritually unaware, grabs a sword, swings at the high priest's servant, and cuts off the dude's ear. And in John's account in verse 11, again, I'll put it on the screen, Jesus commanded Peter, says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Hey, Peter, like, obviously you didn't get the memo, the cross is the point. If you thought I'm just here to hang out with you, you're not that cool. The cross is the point. And Peter, here you are again, stepping in, trying to keep me from the cross. Put your sword away. You don't know what you're doing. You're operating in the flesh. You are spiritually unaware. Your eyes do not see, your ears do not hear, and your heart does not sense what the Father is doing. So stop getting in the way of what the Father is doing. You're like, ouch. And I would even suggest to you, in his being unaware, he is being disobedient to God. And some like, ooh, easy care. That's a big statement about Peter. Here's why I say that. If you remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now again, I'm not a rocket scientist, but that seems pretty clear to me. Jesus is telling them, hey fellows, this is what's going down. This is the plan. 
Plan A is that I'm going to be handed over and killed, but on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. So, like, don't freak out. It's the plan. And in the same verse where he says that, Peter swoops in. Again, here's Peter, all passion, no polish. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Free tip number two. <laughs> Rebuking Jesus will never go well for you. That's free too. It's never going to go well for you. It's never a good idea. Peter says, never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Number three, if Jesus ever looks at you and says, get behind me, Satan, that's a bad day. Right? That's a bad day. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that's what's happening in this garden interaction as well. Jesus is trying to walk the road that the Father has set before him. He's trying to drink the cup that the Father has set before him. He's already wrestled with the Father three times about a plan B. There's not one. There's only plan A, and plan A is the great cup exchange. That's the only option. In fact, the cup was the option before the foundation of the world. We know that from Ephesians chapter 1. It says God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So before this place was ever made, they had a plan. Jesus is pre-existent, which means the cross has always been the play. So there wasn't a time when God was up there like, how are we going to fix this? A cross. What a great idea. Yeah, that's not how it worked at all. That's not how it went down. Which means that for Peter in this moment, to somehow with his sword take on like 300 dudes like Chuck Norris and lead the disciples to fight his way out, he's actually hindering the plans of God. He's in the way. And if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, if the great cup exchange doesn't happen, play that out for a second. Just play that out. So he pulls off the Chuck Norris moment, kills all 300. They live happily ever after. Well, that's a problem. Or he leads the charge. He's not Chuck Norris. They kill him and Jesus. Well, that's a problem because we have all sorts of prophecies now. He's not the Messiah. Either way, Peter... You boogered it up for everybody. You messed it up. And so Peter, just submit. Peter, just submit to the plan of God. Peter, trust God. No, it doesn't make any sense to you, Peter. But it's not about you, Peter. I don't need it to make sense to you. The Father has a plan. Let him execute the plan. Get out of the way. And by God's grace, Jesus calms everything down. Luke's account, account tells us how Jesus did it. Luke twenty two fifty one 51 says, But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. How do you think that interaction went when he got home from work that day? Honey, how was your day? Right? Well, I was hanging with my boys at 2 a.m. and across the way on the mountain, and my ear got cut off. But then that dude we tried to arrest put it back on. Good night. Like, how does that, how do you think he slept that night? I don't think he, I think his eyes were this big all night. I think he had no clue what just happened in his world. But Jesus continues. Look at Matthew 26, verse 52 now. It says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
I think it's worth noting right here that Christianity is not a revolution as our world defines that word. Christianity is not a revolution. Like Jesus never said, hey, go get your pitchforks and your torches, meet in the church parking lot, we're storming the castle. That's not what it's about. It's not what God has called us into. And Jesus makes the observation, look, if you take up the sword, you're going to die by the sword because this has nothing to do with the sword. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. That's not why I'm here. You don't get it. And in verse 53, Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels. Hey, Peter, thanks for the thought, but I don't need your help. Because if I call on the Father, he'll send 72,000 angels who can certainly whoop up on 300 men. The Father has numbers. Numbers beyond what you can imagine. Trust me, Peter, I have superior firepower. I don't need anything that you bring to the table, so just stop and let this play out. Verse 54, Jesus says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It's got to happen this way in order to fulfill all the prophecy of the Old Testament. So just let the Father do what he's going to do because Jesus was perfectly positioned and perfectly prepared to drink the cup that the Father has now set before him. And then finally, Jesus turns his attention to the crowd. I'd imagine at this point, he begins to talk in a much louder voice because he wants all of them to hear what he's about to say. And that's verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Like really, it takes 300 people to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And so now we find Jesus headed to the cross, abandoned by his followers, but not alone, because the Father is still with him. He is still walking in complete obedience to the plan that the Father has laid out before him in perfect obedience to the Father's will. So as we close, let's talk about this cast of characters from our story. For Judas, no one says, ooh, ooh, please, I want to be Judas. That's why no one names their kids that, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll name my kid Judas. That's a good idea. See, for Judas, Judas, we talked about this earlier. It's the danger of believing in faith by proximity. Because too many people in churches say, I have always attended church. Too many people say, you know what? My dad was a deacon or an elder. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Catholic school. I've been in church all my life, so I'm a Christian. Association with the things of God doesn't make you any more of a Christian than associating with the Buccaneers makes me a player on the team. I can wear all the gear. I can watch all the games. That does not make me a player. 
Being a Christian is having a personal, life-changing faith where you deny yourself and you pick up the cross and you follow Jesus, where you've realized that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, and that Savior is not you. And that Savior is not money. And that Savior is not your kids or your spouse or your job. That you are dead, dead in your sins. And you begin to realize that Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead, dead people alive. That's the difference. Too many people think he came to make pretty good people better people. No, he came to make dead people alive, to bring them back to life. And you know what's scary right now is in the past, the church as a whole, we rested on something called the boomerang effect. And maybe this was you, no judging here, but maybe this was you. Like you grew up in church and then you went to college and maybe you went off the rails a little bit and you really didn't factor Jesus into any of your decisions and he really wasn't a part of your life. You weren't a part, had nothing to do with him in any way. You just did you. But then you got married. And you had kids. And you go, you know what? I want to bring my kids up the same way that I grew up. And there's some serious problems with that, but that's what what we saw. But you know what's happening now? They're not coming back. There's no boomerang. It's a baseball throw. More and more young people who grew up with a proximity faith leave high school, leave their faith, walk away from God as the leader and the Lord of their life. They go to college, get their mind blown in college with nonsense and decide that God doesn't exist and they just never come back. They don't come back because we have allowed, we have allowed shallow roots and proximity faith in our churches, in our youth groups, and in our homes. We are all complicit in this. We have said, you know what? Proximity faith. We've spent more time at sporting events with our children than we have discussing and reading the Bible with our kids. We've spent more time praying that they get into the right college than saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we wonder why they walk away. See, your faith has to be your faith. Can't be your parents, can't be your kids, can't be your grandparents, because church, a proximity faith is no faith at all. Because you have to recognize that your sin and what you did, yeah, back in the fourth grade, that's sin. But I'm talking about like this weekend, what we did, and what's maybe going to happen next weekend. You've got to own your sin. This is about every single person, young and old, saying, no, 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 I have trusted. I have trusted in Jesus Christ. I have identified with him. I reject that old life. I'm following Jesus. I'm living my life every single day in radical pursuit of Christ. That's a personal faith, a personal faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, because apart from him, there is no salvation. You can think there is, but just because you think that doesn't make it true. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. But in our story, we have another character. We got Peter. Someone's like, Peter, I'm Peter. Peter's so ready for action and yet so spiritually unaware. In the story here, he's actually a hindrance to the plans of God. Sometimes we're so eager to serve and think we all figured it out. But sometimes we're so sure that what we want 
in that what we're doing, in that what we believe is the right thing, and what everyone else is wanting and believing and doing is the wrong thing, that we now have become a hindrance to the kingdom of God. We've become a hindrance to our church. We have become a hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. And church, that's called pride. And pride is a dangerous, dangerous place to live. In our story, we've also got the crowd. Crowd's got two kinds of people in it. The crowd, though, the danger is living by fear and not by faith. So in this crowd, you've got religious people next to Romans. You're like, how is that possible? Well, because the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And that's what they've done. And the issue for the religious that were present was the fear that Jesus didn't fit their expectation. He didn't quite live like they thought a religious Messiah should live. Like he didn't teach the way and the things that they thought he should teach. And he was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and Miami Hurricanes fans. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's there. Sorry if you're a Miami Hurricanes. He's hanging, out, he's hanging out with all sorts of messed up people who are, that's terrible. That's a terrible joke. That's funny. But he's with, he's with the broken. And like, they're like, Jesus, man, you are just too out there for me. You're just too out there for me. And so instead of having faith, they had fear and like, Pride, fear is a powerful, powerful thing. And so they reject Jesus because he wasn't who they wanted him to be. And so he can't be their Jesus. This Jesus wants control of their life. And they're like, no, that's not how this is going to work. I want to determine what I say, where I go, what I do. I want to determine what truth is. I want to determine what's right and wrong. And Jesus doesn't leave room for that anywhere in Scripture. The crowd had a faith of convenience and control, and according to Jesus, that's no faith at all. But see, that crowd also included Romans, and they didn't have a category for Jesus either. And they certainly didn't know what to do with all of these Christians. If you read some Roman history, you'll come across a guy by the name of Pliny the Younger. Again, a name we never name our kids today, Pliny. You'll be the only one named that in, your, in the nursery. So, hey, welcome, Primey, to church. No. But anyways, Pliny the Younger, he writes letters back and forth with the emperor Trajan. And they're writing back and forth about how to handle Christians. And they're literally trying to figure out, like, what do we do with these people? And in their letters, it's so, they're so confused. And the question is, what are they confused about? Well, these Christians are people who, instead of the drunkenness of the Roman cult, culture, they practiced sobriety. It's like, and these people who instead of sexual indulgence, their letters talk about that these people actually believe that, that sexuality was reserved for a husband and a wife. And these people were instead of worshiping many gods like the Romans, they worshiped one God and they refused to worship Caesar as God. And these were people, when there was someone who was poor, and hurting, they didn't like push him aside. They cared for them. And if there was an orphan, 
They didn't like throw them out in the garbage bin. They adopted them. And when someone was sick, they showed compassion. When there was someone in need, they took what they had. They took, you gave a little, you gave a little, you gave a little. We pulled it together, and then we gave it to the person in need. And they treated each other as brothers and sisters. But the Romans, they had a caste system. And so they were like, wait, what? Like, so let me get this straight. Y'all got rich and poor... Jew and Gentile, male and female, free and slave, and y'all are all one in Christ. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh. And they didn't know what to do with that. And so they too lived in fear and not by faith. But there's also another group that's present, and you know who it is, and they've got a lot of issues, just like me. The disciples were all there. The danger here is being spiritually unaware. I mean, much later, they finally got it, sure. But I thought, what about me? When's the last time in your relationship with God that you lived with a sense of expectation about what God was going to do in your life? Like you got up in the morning with a sense of mystery, and you live with a sense of hope, a sense that, I wonder what God's going to do today. God surprised me today. It might blow my mind, but I, God, I want to have eyes to see it. And I want ears to hear it. And I want my heart attuned to it. God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to today? Surprise me today, God. Bring somebody into my life who needs to hear about you. God, bring somebody into my life today at work or school or wherever I go for me to just encourage, and then boom, there they are. And then, here's the difference between going, wait, what? That's weird. Instead, you're like, yes, of course. I knew you were going to do that. That's just like you. That's just like you. See the difference between the two? Getting up every day going, God, whatever you want, I'm yours today. And then when someone walks in your path, your, your mind's not blown. You're like, of course. Yeah, it's just like you, God. The other thing that disciples are in danger of is really having a weak faith because when persecution comes and it's going to come i'll give you an example if you're at this church right now and you're making disciples you're in danger you are because satan doesn't like you he loves followers why because followers of jesus die off disciples of jesus replicate he doesn't like that at all so if you're a follower he's like i'll just wait you out But if you're a disciple and you're on mission and you're living with a little bit of boldness and courage and strength and purpose, you best not have a weak faith because you better be ready to handle what's coming your way because stuff is coming your way because your strength might be limited, but his strength is not. And can I be candid with you? Like, I don't think in the next 10 years, following Jesus is going to get easier and easier. Amen. Okay, good. I'll say that for myself. First service didn't say it either. Amen. I'll just whisper that off on the side. It's not. I don't, I don't think it's going to get, I don't see us going, wow, it's just awesomely easy. I don't think so at all. I think it's going to get harder and harder, which means we had better have a strong, durable faith. Do you? Finally, I think the disciples are in danger of being disappointed with God. And the thought is, why did they flee? I think they're probably scared. But you know what's interesting? I never caught it before. When did they flee? 
So they're standing in the garden. They're watching the people march out. 15 minutes. Why didn't you flee right then? Because most normal humans are like, deuces, like I'm out. They're coming right for me right now. They run the other way. No, no, no. They wait. They wait until after Jesus is arrested, then they flee. And I thought, how do you think they felt? These guys bet the farm on Jesus. Spent three years with him, gave up everything. They bet their whole future on this guy. I bet they're crushed. I bet they're desperate, confused, disappointed. They expected something, and it didn't happen. And now their faith is sort of on the ropes. They're just getting pounded, and they're like, did I blow it? This is legit, right? Church, I think we're living in similar times. I think there's a lot of us that our faith is on the ropes. And you're getting beat up from people you love and by people you don't know, maybe by culture. And the only way to make it is we need each other. That's why we pray together. That's why you come to church. That's why you do life in community. That's why we bear one another's burdens. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we give to one another. That's why we do our best to create authentic community where you can bring your disappointments to a group and go, I've had a terrible week. I've had a terrible, terrible week. And right now, if I'm honest, I know there's a God, but I don't know if there's a God. Because this week, it's been tough. And you can share that, and the group doesn't look back at you and go, sinner, right? Because you don't need that kind of group. You need a group that goes, I feel you. It's been a rough week for me too. But you know what? Let's see what God's word says. Let's look at his faithfulness. Let's look at his track record. Let's bring our disappointments together. Maybe bring a friend or two who's got some disappointments and get together and find your strength in the Lord. Let's pursue God together. When we encourage one another and say, you know what? You are not alone in that. I've been there. I'm in there. I know you're disappointed, but God is faithful. Look at his track record. Let's lock arms. We're going to make it through this together. It's the only way for us to be physically present and spiritually aware.